mystery, that's the word for today. Uh, we're going to be looking at two particular mysteries, but they're connected. The mystery of God's choice and the mystery of Israel. I'm sure you will remember this day, the 7th of October, 2023. It'll probably turn out to be one of the most significant days in the last few years. You hardly need to be reminded of what happened when Israel was attacked. And it brings up a big question. Why? Why did this happen? Has God got a purpose behind it all? And what we're going to look at today, in a rather popular way, is summarized by this um, quotation. How odd of God to choose the Jews. <laughs> but first of all, we need to read the passage. Now, this is a huge passage, so we can't possibly read it all. But I do want to read about half of it, and I think it's important that we give our attention to what God is saying. There are places where I've missed it out, missed bits out, and they'll be um, indicated by an arrow at the bottom. So this is Paul speaking. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. There's are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are descend his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, Yet before the twins were born or had, anything, had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from 
the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. But if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, you were cut off, cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree. How much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. For as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, but as, f as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God now have received mercy as a result of their disobedience, 
So they too have now become disobedient in order that they may too now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound over everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So what happened on the 7th of October, of course, raises lots of questions. One of them, of course, is why is there anti-Semitism in the world? Why does it seem to be so virulent at the moment? It also raises the other question as why God chooses certain people and not others. And we're going to try to answer those questions in the next few minutes by looking at what Paul says in these chapters from Romans. He starts with his problem. He expresses his great sorrow and his unceasing anguish. He says, I wish myself were cursed and cut off for Christ, for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul looks at his people and he sees that largely they haven't responded to the message that Jesus has given. They're still in their sins. They're still cut off from God. Paul wants them to change. And he even would want to substitute himself in their place. That he would be cursed instead of them. And as he looks at them, he sees all the things that God has given them, the privileges. Theirs is the adoption of sons, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Heirs are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And from them has come the human ancestry of the Messiah, Jesus, who is God over all. And he asked the question, who is Israel? Who are God's chosen people? He says, not all who are descended from Israel, that's Jacob, are Israel, not because, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham had several wives and several children, but it was Isaac who was the designated son of the promise. Not everyone of Abraham's children were the promised children of God. Here we see a brief family tree. Abraham had at least two wives. We'll just stick to those. Hagar, who produced Ishmael, and Sarah, who produced the promised son, Isaac. We'll continue the family tree in a minute. The next generation is Rebekah who was married to Isaac. Rebekah had 
twins. God told her that she was going to have twins. And God also said that he had a choice that he had made. The word that the Bible uses is election. You hardly need to be reminded that this year we are going to have an election. The Americans and the Indians and I think about a third of the world are going to have this experience as well. What do we do in elections? Well, basically, we choose. And God has chosen. This is his election. And who has he chosen? Well, he chose Isaac as opposed to the other son. Sorry, he chose Jacob as opposed to the other son, Esau. This is a quotation from the Old Testament. The older will serve the younger. And another one, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. God made a choice. There we see the line continuing through the promised son, Jacob. So why does God do this? Well, we can't really answer this question. This is only God's prerogative. But it's interesting if we look in a bit more detail at what Paul is saying here, he says something, I think, which is quite significant. And it's um, a matter of the Greek, the original language of the New Testament. If this is a bit of a footnote for you, you can turn off for the next couple of minutes but I do think it's important that we look at it because it says here, therefore God has mercy on whom, the word there is hon in Greek, which is a masculine singular pronoun. He wants to have mercy. In other words, he's choosing an individual and God always chooses individuals. The fact that it's masculine is basically because um, in Greek, you use masculine for anyone who's not, but a general statement. And he hardens those he wants to harden. But it says he hardens whom? The particular one he wants to harden. So is this fair? Well, we don't really know what God's um, ultimate criteria are in choosing people. But what we do know is that God has the right to make that choice. And Paul asks the question, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? You wouldn't expect your mug to start speaking to you, would you? Why did you make me like this? Even if you were a potter, you wouldn't expect your pot to start speaking to you. But this is something we find very commonly in our present society. They may not use the word, why did you make me like this? But they certainly question their identity that God has given them. I need not say any more, I think. But Paul asks the question here, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Now, we can't really understand God's um, ways of doing things, but at least from this passage, we have to recognize that God has the right to choose 
and he has the right to choose what he uses people for. Paul's argument is quite involved here, and I don't really want to go into it in too much detail. But what he does say is God is choosing, and God has chosen, he chooses for his purposes. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? In his choice, God is bringing about his purposes. He wants to show mercy to people. But the key point he makes is that he hasn't just chosen the Jews. He's also chosen people from among the Gentiles, the non-Jews. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. So God's purposes in choosing are not just confined to the Jews, his supposed um, chosen people. What shall we say then, he asks, that the Gentiles who did not pursue a righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. The Jews had largely rejected God's offer of salvation through Jesus the Messiah, but the Gentiles in Paul's day had responded in a lot more favourable terms to God's offer of salvation. What had happened to the Jews? Well, he says here, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. I'm sure we've been reminded of this this last week. We've all had to walk around the streets in a bit, with a bit more care. And it's always easy in these conditions to stumble. What had the Jews stumbled over? Well, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. This is not a, a, a word that we would normally use to describe Jesus, our Saviour. But for the Jews, he was the one that they stumbled over. And there's another quotation here. Uh, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So who is the one that they stumble? Well, it's Jesus, our saviour. And in Paul's day, they had largely stumbled over him. They had not accepted him as the saviour that he was meant to be. And then Paul says, Something of his heart, especially something of his heart here. My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. And he comes into chapter 11 now, which again is quite a complicated chapter. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself. God certainly hasn't rejected all the Jews because I'm one of them. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people. He's saved me. He's chosen me. Did they stumble? And there's that word stumble again. So as to fall beyond recovery. No, not at all, he says. God's purposes are still going to be worked out. But it's a rather... Um, 
strange sort of thing that God is going to do through all this. The Jews largely had rejected Jesus. Paul calls this a transgression. It's going against what God has revealed, what God wanted them to do. But because of this transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And Paul's hope is that when the Jews see that the Gentiles have accepted Jesus as the Messiah, they would be envious. And he says here, if their transgression, that's the Jews' transgression, the Jews' rejection of Jesus, means riches for the world, and their loss, that's a similar term, means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion be? Now, Paul is looking forward to a time when the full number of the Gentiles will come in. The Greek there is the word pleroma, which means fullness. It's like the um, cup is being filled right up to the top, and eventually it's going to come to the point where it can be filled no more. There is going to be a fullness when all the Gentiles, the full number of the Gentiles come in. I think the New Living Translation does express it very clearly, so I'm going to read this as well. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient, and God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. I'm talking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse some of my people to envy and save some of them. Paul wanted some of his people, the Jews, to come to faith in Jesus as their saviour. But he also looks and says, if the Jews' rejection of Jesus brought reconciliation to the world, that's the message of the gospel going out to the Gentile nations and the Gentile nations coming to be reconciled with God, what will their, Jew, what will their that's the Jews' acceptance be but life from the dead? Now this term, life from the dead, is no, used nowhere else in the New Testament and it seems to be a unique uh, expression of what God is going to do. In other words, he's saying when the Jews finally um, accept Jesus their Messiah, something big, something great is going to happen, like the life being given back to dead people. And then he goes into another argument, which is a different type of argument. It's um, one from the world of agriculture. The key term that we have here is grafting. If you have a tree and you want to um, improve the stock of that tree, you can take a shoot from another tree and you can make an incision into your original tree and bind it up so it doesn't come out. 
and you can graft that stock into the original tree to improve the quality of the fruit that you get. The particular tree he has in mind is an olive tree, which was very common in the world of Paul's day. And Paul says, if some of the branches have been broken off, and you Gentiles, though you are wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap of the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. You may be a grafted olive shoot, but you're, no, you're not superior to anyone else. You're not superior to the original tree. He says, if you do, if you do consider yourself superior, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Yes, that's true. That's happened. Um, we as Gentiles have been grafted into God's olive tree, which he started through the Jews. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. If God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, Paul says. Kindness to those who fell and sternness to you. Sorry, sternness, that's right. Sternness to those who fell and kindness to you. Provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And if they, the Jews, do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. It's a perfectly natural process for the Jews to accept Jesus as the Messiah because they were the original stock. And God can easily graft them in back into the original olive tree. After all, if you Gentiles were cut off a wild olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Not a big thing for God to do this. So what's our reaction? Well, Paul says here, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced the hardening in part until the full number, this is the fullness word, pleroma again, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Or as the New Living says, I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. And, he says, all in this way, all Israel will be saved. 
Now, what does he mean by this? Well, we don't really know, but clearly it's something on a rather big scale. Whether it's every single Jew being saved, we don't know, but it's clearly something big for him to say. All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Every Sabbath morning in the Princess Road Synagogue in Liverpool, they pray a prayer. And this is the bit in English that you can understand. Um, May the deliverer come from Zion. That's their prayer. They haven't seen the reality that the deliverer has come from Zion. And he has turned away the godlessness from Jacob. And this is my covenant, Paul says, when I take away their sins. This, of course, is Jesus. He was the one who was specifically sent to take away sins. His name is Jesus, which means the one who saves, the Lord saves. He will save us from our sins, as Matthew's gospel records. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they're loved on account of the patriarchs. God has his purpose. He's chosen his people. They're elect. They're chosen And he will show mercy. Just as you Gentiles who at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of Israel's disobedience, so the Israelites too have become disobedient in order that they may too may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to the Gentiles. And right at the end, Paul makes his grand statement For God has bound over everyone, that's Jews and Gentiles, to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. God's purposes are tied up with the Jews. That's very clear from this passage. God will save all Israel, whatever that means. But his plan is also to work amongst the Gentiles and have mercy on them so with a flourish Paul ends this um, rather complicated um, three chapters that I've attempted to take you through and he looks at what God's purposes are and he marvels at what God is going to do oh the depth of of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To God, to him be the glory forever. Amen. So, where does this leave us? Well, I've got eight things that you might like to take away. I'm not going to comment on them in great detail because basically I've done that already. But 
I think we need to ask ourselves some questions. Do we have great sorrow and unceasing anguish over the state of those who do not believe? Do we accept that God can choose whom he wants to? It's a mystery. We can't understand how God has chosen some and apparently not others. But these truths are in the Bible because they are a great comfort to those who do believe that God has chosen and God has chosen us. We can confidently say that. Do we look beyond the current Israel-Gaza conflict, praying that God will fulfill his purposes to both sides? So we shouldn't just be praying for what God does among the Jews. We should also be praying for what God is doing amongst the Palestinians, the Gaza, the Gazans. And to be honest, we don't, we don't really know anything about that. We don't know what God's perspective is, but we can pray that God will work. And we should guard ourselves against all manifestations of anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, the Christian church has not been a good example of that. Just want to single out a negative and a positive example. Uh, Martin Luther, great man though he was, and what he discovered about justification by faith, had a big blind spot against the Jews. Um, you can read some of his stuff, and it is very, very anti-Semitic. And it may explain why Nazism, hundreds of years later, was able to um, take root in German society. He should not be our example in that particular uh, case. Perhaps we could take encouragement from Oliver Cromwell. Now he made mistakes. I'm not there to comment on his politics, but he did believe very strongly that the Jews as a nation would turn back to God. And he had the courage to reverse a decision that had been made centuries before to expel the Jews from England. Um, Cromwell thought that it would be good for the Jews to return because in coming into contact with Christians, they would have a greater chance to accept Jesus as their Messiah. <coughs> Remember that as Gentile believers, we have been grafted into the cultivated olive tree. Let's keep praying that God's word will be fulfilled, that all Israel will be saved. Now, how this is going to be worked out, we don't really know. And in a sense, perhaps we just have to leave that with God. But there is something that we can do that is very much our responsibility today, which is the seventh point here. What is our attitude to the stumbling stone? We've seen who, we've seen who this stumbling stone is. He's Jesus. Have we stumbled over him? Does he stumble us? And finally, let's remember what Jesus came to do. He is the deliverer who came from Zion. He is the one who takes or can take away our sins. Amen.